Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we are going to jump back into Trump world and catch up on the resistance, including the resistance that's coming from inside the White House. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. Today, we're coming from the Institute for Government, and we're in the office of the director, Bronwyn Maddox, and apparently it was Kitchener's dressing room. So I have absolutely no evidence for that. I'm an evidence-based institution, so I can't offer you that, but that's my guess. And that's why it's echoey, because he had quite a spacious dressing room. Helen Thompson is with us as well. Uh, before becoming director here, Bronwyn was editor of Prospect magazine, and before that, foreign editor of The Times, and also Washington bureau chief, I believe. So you, that is you right. have that is right. You have some inside Beltway knowledge from back then, and continuing interest in it. And this is uh, a week after which two documents have emerged. One of which I haven't read. I don't know if anyone else here has read, which is the Bob Woodward book. But we've read enough about what's in it. The other is the now notorious anonymous op-ed in the New York Times where an official in the administration claimed to represent the resistance and he said, he or she said, I suspect it's a he, that he was part of the steady state, not the deep state, that is trying to moderate the excesses of a Trump presidency in the spirit of a Trump agenda. And this raises a whole host of questions, I think, about how democratic politics now works. And if we start with the inside Beltway question about Trump and try and move out from there to a wider question about executive power. So, Bronwyn, there is a kind of basic political ethical question here. If you take that New York Times anonymous op-ed, many of its critics have said this is fundamentally undemocratic to work inside an administration and anonymously resist it. The honourable thing to do is to resign, to go public. The counter-argument is this is an exceptional administration, and if all decent-minded people resign, leaving the rest, we're worse off. Where do you stand on that? I stand with the first, uh, the first side of that argument, if you like. There is a huge ethical argument about this, I think. And I think very much as you've said, it's really quite disturbing to see someone say, look, I'm going to oppose an elected administration, an elected president, from within and frustrate that president's attempts to put into practice the agenda that he was elected on. And yes, I think there is pressure for that person to go public, though you can't quite see what repercussions might follow. And Trump is obviously muttering not only treason, but obviously threatening all kinds of retribution if they find the person. But I think there is real concern about that. Is this so exceptional a presidency that this resistance from within is, is justified? I think we'd have to be quite uneasy about accepting that. Yes, it's tempting. And there are things that are almost unique, or you hope they are, about the Trump presidency, which really come down to his character and the very impetuous way that he's acting and the way the lack of consistency, if you like. So I guess taking that side of the argument, you could say, look, he's not acting in any consistent way, that you can't say that he's, he's furthering the agenda on which he was elected because he's operating in fits and starts. You never know what he'll do or tweet next. 
therefore this is justified. But I think, you know, that sets very uncomfortable precedents and is still open to the argument from Trump to say, look, I'm delivering on what I said. I've, you know, I've done X, Y, Z. It's exactly what I said I would do. Yes, you've got all kinds of noise on top, but that's what presidents do and say. Because there has been an attempt to kind of separate out, as you say, the personality question from the policy question. And the argument for people who will defend this anonymous resistance is that it's the character issue that requires it because what's exceptional about Trump's character is precisely, as you say, the unpredictability. And in that op-ed, the person who wrote it went out of his or her, his way, to say that he thought he was championing the agenda while moderating the person. I don't know, Helen, do you buy it as a distinction? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I partly don't buy it because that isn't the only thing that the person said. I mean, the person, in part, is saying, look, Trump was elected as a Republican. That means he's a conservative in the conventional sense of what that means in Republican politics. And therefore, if he doesn't do what this person deems conservative things, and there was some phrase about free minds and free markets and free something else. Free that, trade. Yeah, free trade, I think it was. Uh, then we are entitled to resist that. Well, Trump clearly wasn't elected as a conservative. He did, in some sense, hijack the Republican Party, but he did it by legitimate means, by running as a candidate in the Republican primary. So if he's taken the Republican Party in a non-conservative direction within democratic politics, that's absolutely fine. And so I think that the distinction that, if there was a distinction to be made between Trump's temperament and Trump's agenda, that the anonymous writer actually collapses the distinction with his or her own argument. Because the emblematic story that's come out of the Woodward book is the, the trade deal with South Korea being taken off his desk when he's about to sign the thing that will break it. Mm-hmm. I've it just come back from South Korea. I, I mean, the, how, how do they feel about that? They, they are, are they appalled, are they? Uh, absolutely appalled. And there's these kind of whispers going around diplomatic circles of whether the effect is going to be to push South Korea closer to China because that is the only country that can really guarantee now, it seems, protection from the north. And the old um, alliance, you know, the bond of blood, as the diplomats used to call it, uh, with America, is founded on trade and defence. And Trump has really shown, uh, according to the Woodward book, that he didn't care very much for either of those. So, yes, that that, that, that is not just in South Korea. I totally agree with you. That is uh, the standout um, But don't you think it's completely implausible? I mean, there's many things that seem to me plausible in the Woodward book, but this one seems completely implausible that somebody could be stopped by stealing a piece of paper. Implausible because Trump would have spotted it. Well, because I, I, I believe it. I have to say I believe Because it. that's the whole way in which paper works in administrations is, is as a paper trail. The idea that just because the particular document goes missing from the White House desk that this is going to stop the whole thing for even to be on the White House desk, there would have to have been other copies of it. That's just, that's how bureaucracies work. And this just doesn't seem to fit with the way in which... And it does raise other questions. Like, presumably if someone could take something off his desk, yeah. someone could put something on his desk, just as just informally. So, you know, I, I agree with you, but... Because there is the yet- story that he tears up documents, and then at the end of the day, someone comes in and takes the bins out of the Oval Office and sellotapes them back together again for the archives. And there is the Michael Wolff going back to that older, a slightly older account of the Trump White House that he didn't read many of the executive orders that he signed in the first day. So I don't know. It's I guess I feel there's enough anecdotes around at the moment that that has the ring of plausibility. But I, I agree. I mean, the machine of the White House is not broken down completely as far as we can tell. Because the Michael Wolff book, which I have read, what most struck me about that was it sounded like it was describing a kind of monarchical court. And there, there is a there's meant to be a kind of check to all democratic politicians, which is that they want to hear bad news quickly, 
because they need to know what is angering the voters because that's how they're going to get re-elected. And there is this sort of classic distinction between monarchies and other kinds of regimes that in monarchies, bad news travels fast to the top because you need to know it. And in monarchies, you protect the king from bad news because the king will get angry, but there's nothing you can do about it. And maybe I believe these books more than you do. It feels to me a bit like that, that these are people who are operating around someone because he doesn't register what might actually cause him harm with the electorate. And so that check doesn't really operate. He's, he's not someone who is thinking rationally about his future prospects. They are treating him more like a king who needs to be cosseted and protected and including have news that gets to him managed for him. I mean, I, I may have bought into this too much, and I haven't read the Woodward book, I've only read the Woodward book. I wonder, I would think that people are calculating first, what does it do for them if they bring bad news to the, the president, and, the, and then what does it do for him? Um, but even that not, fear, what, you know, to be the messenger, that's the thing you don't want to be in the court of Henry I think VIII, the, point, the messenger of I bad news. I think the point news. that you're right about is, is that Trump is very bad at defensive politics. He's pretty good, actually, at attack Politics. He wouldn't have been able to win the Republican nomination if he wasn't. I think he was actually less good at attack politics against Hillary Clinton, strangely, but he was very good at it against his primary opponents. He's hopeless at defensive politics because he doesn't understand what he needs to defend, and that's where his narcissism comes in. So I can see the idea of him at a centre of a court and these people who are trying to work out what they can and can't tell him without causing explosions. I find that a lot more plausible than I do documents being stolen off desks to stop trade agreements being reneged upon. And Bronwyn, you said obviously one of the deep anxieties about this is the precedent that it sets. So Trump will not be president forever, he may not be president for that much longer, and yet if people accept this as a reasonable way to behave, others will use it as justification. Neil Ferguson wrote an article in which he said, from his point of view, this is just bureaucracy. This is, you know, bureaucracy is about containing executive power. But of course, there's a huge difference between the sort of yes minister version of that, where you have career bureaucrats who do temper the wild excesses of democratic politicians, and the American system, where these are all brought in to serve the administration. And I was thinking about, so say Trump loses and Elizabeth Warren, or, or someone further to the left than Elizabeth Warren, comes in. Do you think that there is a danger that this would repeat? Because I find it hard to imagine that a Warren administration would contain within it people who felt they had to moderate it. I mean, it might be in a, in a British system, a Corbyn government might face Whitehall bureaucrats who, who have to channel it. But would the American system do the point, that? The point is you don't know. And what the you know, American official who wrote that is looking at is the particular powers that the American president has over foreign policy and to some extent over trade. So in many, many respects, the American president looks incredibly powerful and yet is very circumscribed by Congress when it comes to do with you know, anything to do with domestic budget and so on. But there are these huge areas appointing judges, not just to the Supreme Court, which we hear a lot about, but all the kind of appeal court uh, level, you know, a lot of areas of freedom, all right, he has to get the judges through the uh, uh, through Congress, but so he's got a lot of areas of freedom, and that's what this person says he or she is very worried about. I, I, no, I look, I remain concerned about the precedent that this sets of someone saying that the American Constitution, the checks and balances on the American president are not actually enough to contain a president who might suddenly go to war or something, and therefore the people around him or her have to act quietly. You know, I find that quite disturbing. That is different from British independent civil service saying in the 
Sir Humphrey Mole to minister, that would be very bold. And finding ways quietly to you know, go slow. To make it less bold. <laughs> yes. I think that um, the, the issue in some respects is actually the fact that the op-ed has been written rather than the practice itself. Because I think that a lot of this actually has gone on in the past. If you, you know, look at the accounts of the Reagan administration, it's pretty clear that some of the people, want to say Jim Baker would be a good example, who were working for him, were trying to find ways of navigating around him. And they were doing it both because they didn't necessarily agree with some of his agenda, and they were doing it because they had some doubts about Reagan's temperament and, at some point, his health after the... Yeah, in the second term, where he clearly yeah. did have um, yeah, so early onset. is that... But none of those people then wrote op-eds calling themselves anonymous in the New York Times basically saying we're trying to resist a democratically elected president I mean I think if you go back further you go back to Nixon I mean you know you've got people in his own administration who are spying on him and Kissinger because they're so unhappy with what detente policies he's pursuing with um, Russia and China but again that wasn't being put into the public sphere what you have in this case is, is you have whoever this person is saying not only that person but according to this person other people as well think that they have the right to resist the agenda, not just the temperamental and suitability of Trump to the presidency, the agenda of a democratically elected president, and to do so in the name of a particular political project of Republican conservatism. I don't think you can find a precedent for that, and I agree with Roman. I think that that's deeply disturbing for where that line of argument goes in terms of democratic politics. And everything that brought Trump's presidency about in the first place in terms of the distrust of the kinds of voters that he's mobilised is just magnified by seeing this demonstration of this kind of really unaccountable power. It does point to things about the modern president's power that the founding fathers cannot possibly have foreseen. For example, the ability to launch nuclear weapons. And when Trump was having his uh, sort of uh, verbal jousting match with a North Korean leader saying, you know, my button's bigger than yours, people, there was a lot of analysis saying, is there anything to stop Trump you know, giving the order for nuclear weapons to be fired and those weapons actually being fired. Is any kind of check in that process? And really the answer was no. You came back on the same question we're discussing now, which is whether generals or senior people in the military would do what the, the, you know, is, goes against every bit of the military code, which is to fire an order from the president on their own judgment. And uh, many people found that less than reassuring. And so, you know, the, the, the freedoms that the American president has at the moment really are quite significant and go beyond perhaps what the Constitution thought. I think the other thing that's interesting is the flip side of this is, is there's the what do you do about Trump with his temperament having nuclear weapons at his disposal? And then there's what do you do about a president whose foreign policy agenda has tried to be very different than what his predecessors have ended up being, I actually think Obama tried to have a different foreign policy than what he ended up having as well. So from what I could see from the Woodward book, from what was online um, this morning, there's an episode whereby someone who's you know talked to Woodward saying, look, we're the adults in the room and we had to stop him basically withdrawing from Afghanistan because that's what he wants to do. Well, in some sense, you know, he was elected to be a more isolationist president. I don't think he's actually been an isolationist president, but his foreign policy stance was a critique of American involvement in the Middle East since 2001. Does resisting him on a matter like Afghanistan, does that make them the adults in the room, or does that make them the foreign policy establishment that's presided over really what has been a record of failure for the last two decades? And again, I think 
it goes to the heart of what's the point of having democratic elections where you have some debate about foreign policy in them if actually the presidents are then elected and they are completely constrained by the existing foreign policy establishment. And I say, that doesn't take away the nuclear question with Trump. It just means that the foreign policy question is about more than that too. And just to go back to the point I made earlier, trying to imagine how this precedent would play out under a democratic administration, that's capital D, Democrat administration. Is this about the fault line in the Republican Party, that foreign policy fault line, or could you see it repeating itself? I mean, it's hard to know how radical a candidate could be elected president on the Democrat side. Is it possible to imagine the foreign policy establishment operating in the same way under a Democrat president? Or is this about that divide within American conservatism? I think, it, look, I think it's both. But I, yes, I could imagine it under a Democrat president and that you got very sharp disagreements over relations with Russia or the Middle East or something and people not wanting to give the president the freedom that he or she would, would naturally have. So, I mean, it does set worrying precedents, but obviously most immediately it does touch on a really big fault line in the Republican Party because what Trump is doing is not classic Republican foreign policy. I mean, American isolationism has come and gone and, uh, repeatedly, but Republican foreign policy has been associated you know, with free trade, which Trump is... To the extent he's consistent, he is not for, and has you know not undermined the big institutions set up since uh, the Second World War, like NATO and the World Trade Organization and so on. And he is really sceptical as a reflex of, of pretty well all of those. And that, that does go against the, the course of, of Republican foreign policy. No, I was just going to say I agree, and I think you could say that you know this person sounded like a conservative, never Trumper, if you put it in terms of what was going on in the primaries, and those kinds of people seem to make a certain kind of peace with, a relative peace anyway, with Trump when he was doing conservative things like the Supreme Court and the tax cuts. But they're clearly from the beginning deeply unhappy about foreign policy. Now I'd say that they've actually shifted. Trump quite a long way on foreign policy. He's not pursuing an America first policy, not least in regard to Syria, you know, where he was engaged in the bombing attacks that Obama administration ultimately was not willing to do against the Assad regime. But each time I think that Trump sort of tries to push himself back to where he was electorally on foreign policy, then you see a never Trump reaction within the Republican Party of like, let's haul him back online on foreign policy. In some sense, they got their gains that they wanted on domestic policy, but he must for them be constrained on foreign policy. Well, they've sort of, but the effect has been something that is very erratic. So, you know, they they, uh, didn't stop him rubbishing the G8 or the G7 at the the meeting. Did we gather, stop him saying something very destructive about NATO? But what's emerged on Russia policy, if you can call it that, is an incredibly confusing mixture of hot and cold. Absolutely. Sometimes very cold. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
The other thing that's happened this week is that President Obama has re-entered the fray and he's now campaigning, having been, to many people's frustration, quite quiet for a long time during the Trump presidency. He's back campaigning before the midterms, which are less than two months away. He gave a speech at the weekend in which, as I understood it, what he was trying to do was to prevent people from thinking there's this thing called Trump or Trumpism and there's this thing called the Republican Party, trying to insist that this is one and the same and that all of the, as he put it, paranoia, conspiracy theory thinking that people might associate with the Trump presidency actually goes back a long way and comes out of a party that he described as no longer normal. So he used that language that people have been using about the Republican Party for quite a while. That's quite something to come from a former president, that this is no longer a normal party. This is a party that believes crazy things. So if you think Trump is crazy, he's saying to people, don't think this is about Trump. This is about the Republican Party, and it's who they are now. So he's trying to, in a way, he's trying to close the gap that maybe opens up when you discover there are never Trumpers in the administration. Do you think it's an effective strategy? Is it persuasive to you that people should think of the Trump craziness as symptomatic of Republican craziness? To me, I, I read it as a challenge or heard it as a challenge to the Republican Party of, look, are you Trump? I mean, he was getting to me at the Faustian bargain that the Republicans who don't like Trump have made, which is saying that, and we've just been discussing, you know, that they want the tax cuts that he's, he's delivered. They want absolutely want the judges, not just the Supreme Court, but the lots and lots at lower levels, and that will stay for a long time. And in return for that, they have swallowed all kinds of things they don't like, the foreign policy we've just been talking about, and, and the craziness. The, uh, the personality, oh God, you can't just call them quirks. The twists and turns, the unpredictable. They even call them pathologies. Yeah, the, you know, the essence of Trump. And he's throwing that in their faces and saying, look, if you're backing President Trump, you have to sign on for all of it. You don't just get the two big things that you want him to deliver. You have to own this stuff. And if you own this stuff, right, we can call you the crazy, the crazy party because this stuff is crazy. So that, that was how I took that speech. He was going out of his way also to identify things that precede Trump. So he brought up ben- yes. Benghazi, which is not... I mean, Trump obviously surfed this. He also talked about the conspiracy theory, which is the essence of Trumpism, which is birtherism. So he, he said that that idea that my birth certificate is fake, so that is Trump. But Benghazi doesn't depend on Trump, but also climate denial. He said, these are people who deny the truth, deny the facts, deny science. Now, that's not just Trump. So he was trying to kind of take it back before Trump. Helen, is it effective? I think it has. It certainly has potential in terms of putting pressure on Republican candidates in midterm elections in terms of how far that they're willing to distance themselves from Trump. The difficulty of, well, I think there's both a strength and a, and a weakness of Obama's re-emergence on the Democrat side. That the strength is 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 like it gets away from Hillary Clinton, who was more the face of the resistance, shall we say, last year when Obama was being silent and she was doing her bringing her book out and doing her book tour. And from the Democrats' point of view, then Obama is much better at presence than Hillary Clinton's. I think the weakness of it is is that it's easy to forget that until, well, really until the 2016 presidential race came along, that Obama's approval ratings weren't that great, actually. And that, you know, during the course of his presidency, the Democrats lost an awful lot of positions, you know, whether it be at state level, whether it be the whether it be the Congress and then losing the presidency um, to um, Trump. So, you know, Obama was not some great electoral machine from the Democrats' point of view, from any other consideration than his own election to office. 
And the Democrats have still got to have some kind of answer to, like, well, what are they for, as opposed to just, we're against Trump, we're against the the crazy party. And I think that one of the things that will be in play as things get nearer to November is, is the reaction, at least in some races, of Democratic candidates who've moved to the left. Listening to Obama, it reminded me of something that Jan Werner Müller says about populism, which is that there's a paradox at the heart of populism, politicians who claim to speak for the vast majority, for ordinary people, for common sense. When they lose elections, how do they explain it? If you're speaking for the vast majority, why aren't they voting into office? And they have to have a conspiratorial explanation. So Obama's doing that in reverse. He's channeling the the idea of the paranoid style. These are fringe ideas. These used to be ideas that were on the edges of American politics, and somehow the Republican Party has embraced them. But if they're fringe ideas, how come they kept winning elections even before Trump? I mean, it's not just because of Trump. These ideas, if they go back 10, 15 years, that is also a story of increasing electoral success. And you have to have an explanation for what it is about American life or the American economy or the state of the world that means that, as he calls them, crazy ideas are election-winning ideas. And he doesn't have... I, no, I didn't no, hear an explanation. Is, I think that. that's right. And this is Obama's weak point, that he seems to then speak for the elites or the coast. He doesn't have really a strong message to the people who feel left behind by globalisation and all these things. And so Trump has, was able to storm in and say, let's uh, rip up the NAFTA trade deal and all this kind of thing. And Obama, I think, still is struggling to find a clear message uh, outside the kind of big cities in the coast for what he would have offered those people or why they should think that they were going to benefit from the kind of very globalised world that he so passionately still believes in. I think the other thing is, is, is though it gets back to the what happened back in, you know, like 2008. I mean, there were, in 2008, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama themselves being very anti-trade. I mean, they were competing with each other in Ohio in particular as to who could rip NAFTA up, the, you know, the most quick when they were going to be in office. And Obama then sent some of his... You know, team off to Canada and said, oh, really, don't worry, I didn't really mean it, it was just for the voters in, in Ohio. So there is, I think, that on the trade one in particular, I think that not only do they not have a present tense message, but they run the risk of asking people to forget about the fact that they were capable of expressing themselves, and I mean here both Obama and Clinton, the discontent with globalisation. It's not like that this discontent with globalisation and its consequences, if that's what it is, can simply be said, okay, that's crazy Republican politics, because it's something that the Democrats participated in very strongly themselves. And, and one of the implications of his message is he says the Republican Party used to know what they stood for. He, he actually says that. They used, it used to mean something, and now it's not clear what it means. But as Helen says, that's a charge that can be thrown back at the Democrats. I want to ask a quick question about British politics, because, and I'm not trying to sort of make this excessively provocative, but I do think There are parallels between the dilemma of some Labour politicians, MPs, in relation to Corbyn and some Republicans in relation to Trump, not trying to compare the agendas in any way, but just that question of if you're standing for election in a party that you believe maybe has been taken over by forces where you share some of the values and you can certainly want to win elections, but there are some things that you find really, really hard to swallow. How do you present yourself to the public? I think there are potentially parallels there for Republicans who don't support Trump but want Republicans to win elections and deliver some of the things that Trump is delivering. Is there a shared dilemma when your party's been taken over by a leader who is not your, not only not your first choice for leader, but says and thinks things that you really find hard to stomach, but you have to stand under that? I think there obviously but, is. At the same time, 
I think the differences in the systems, for me, really dominate over that. So, you know, as an American, as a, as a member of the House of Representatives or a senator, you've got a lot of freedom from, you know, a president who is elected directly. You can build your whole career on serving your locality. You can, there are many, many examples down the years of people, you know, running for local office and a state are being really quite rude about their president or never mentioning their, their president. And you probably have quite a bit of that going on at the moment. I mean, they might have a, a quite a direct choice if, say, the House of Representatives went to the Democrats and uh, in, in November and the House then began impeachment you know, proceedings. Then they've got a decision about what to do and whether they defend the president of their party or, or, or not. But they've got a lot more freedom to maintain a political career and have nothing to do with their president if they want than a British MP does in a you know parliamentary system. With the manifesto, which there is no manifesto with, in the with, American with, system. With, at with, the, at with, most, there's yeah, a platform. With a manifesto where all you know promotion goes through the leader leader of the party and where you've got in the Labour Party at the moment these particular mechanisms that allow local deselection manoeuvres and everything to be targeted against MPs. So I, I think MPs are in a much more vulnerable and difficult position. Do you think there were any Labour MPs who read the New York Times op-ed and thought, yeah, this is how we're going to operate under a Corbyn Prime Ministership? Or maybe we won't, but Whitehall will. I'm sure some of them might think that Whitehall might. I agree with Bronwyn. I mean, they are in a pretty different position because no Republican who's running for office this November has to say that they're committed to the Trump presidency running beyond the next presidential election because they can support somebody else in a primary to say that you know, someone else should be the Republican president. But if you stand for an, to be an MP for the Labour Party at the next election, you have to say that you want Jeremy Corbyn to be As we talked about before, you have an informal constitutional commitment to that. You, you can't get around that. You have to be able to you know, stand on the doorsteps and say to people, yes, it will be a good thing for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister, or at least you have to be able to say it would be less bad for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister than whoever the Conservatives have got as leader by the time. And if you're of any seniority, you're under pressure to you know rock up at the party conference and stand there singing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, as uh, Tom Watson, the, the legal That's deputy, right. did last year. And this year is not, because they've not given him a slot to speak. Well, they have. Uh, have they? And, and, and they're not the slot he wanted. No, 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 they're no, no, much argy-bargy about that. But anyway, the distance is showing. Uh, <laughs> after a year, I totally agree. It's a shame there isn't a Republican conference like that because it would at least be fun to watch them squirm. Well, there is the Republican convention. Yeah, but no, but every year that they have to gather in a seaside town. Anyway, I want to ask a last broader, much broader question, which is about executive power, because I think some of this does come back to a feature not just of American politics, but of democratic politics around the world, which is the increasing focus on executive power, partly because in different systems legislative politics is finding it harder to get things done and that is in part because electorates are much more divided um, there's much less common ground on which a lot of legislative politics depends and this again precedes Trump after all Obama could get almost nothing done for six years so had to act through executive orders and Trump was able to undo those where you have democracies where there is at least a possible breakdown of some of the traditional checks and balances because legislative politics is ineffectual and executive politics becomes the focus of decisive action. Does that necessarily mean that questions about resistance to the executive, possibly by anonymous means or within an administration, within a civil service, come to the fore? Is this symptomatic of, of a wider trend in democratic politics, which is the increasing power of the executive? 
I guess the question I'm trying to get at is where resistance to executive power should come from if it's becoming increasingly difficult for parliaments or legislatures to get things done. And are we likely to see more of what we've seen under the Trump administration, which is people claiming, in the absence of anyone else, being able to constrain the executive to do it from inside the administration? And I think even in the Brexit case, there is a question about parliament could potentially block what the executive wants. But in the end, the deal is going to have to be struck within the executive. And and the, the high politics is probably going to be more inside the executive than exercised by parliament. Yeah, I mean, I think that on the Brexit one, that is just the constitutional position because the executive in our constitutional system negotiates treaties and then parliament can take a vote on that treaty in some form or another. But there isn't any mechanism by which parliament can do the negotiating. So the politics has to happen in terms of the negotiations themselves and details of it within the executive. I think in the case of the the US, it's inappropriate for people within the executive to then start thinking that they are the check that has to go back to the legislature however difficult that is now obviously there was a further check if if the legislature started doing unconstitutional things of the the supreme court but i think that you know all politicians in democratic politics have got to accept that as electorates have polarized that they have to find new ways of doing legislative business and that that will mean that they can't give their supporters anything as like as much as they would like and I think that's one of the things that's happened in the United States both in you know under the Bush administration under the Obama administration as presidential elections and probably midterm elections as well became about turnouts then their whole emphasis became on doing things that your core voters would be pleased by but if you have a divided country where you know elections are around the 52 48 even closer, obviously, in 2000 itself, then that kind of politics isn't going to work. It's going to become dysfunctional. But I think that unless you want to give up on democratic politics altogether, you've got to find ways of making legislative politics do what it's supposed to do. I guess that is the sharp version of my question, which is, that is the traditional defence. How much strain is it under? Is it actually possible to continue to deliver in those terms? through the legislature? Because I'm sceptical, or certainly I I think the strains are quite considerable at the moment. I think they are, and I think Brexit is a really good example of this. Though Parliament had to battle for the right to have a a say on the deal that uh, the UK government may yet do. No, I'm happy at the moment that that check, if you like, I mean, is, is through Parliament. Yes, it's going to be much less clean cut than in the past. It is, Parliament is reflecting the very divided views of the of the country and at the moment it's not obvious that there's a clear majority for any one version of, of Brexit though that, that, that may emerge but that seems to me appropriate and I don't see a sort of happy alternative to that I think that we do, we do have the, the, the tension as Helen saying you know that means that politicians can deliver their supporters less than in the past which is going to raise people's mistrust and frustration with you know the parties that they maybe following. But at the same time, if, if there weren't that democratic check, there would be even more distrust. You're asking also, though, whether it you know is going to come from officials or whatever. And I know there's a lot of concern among some in uh, the Labour top team about whether the civil service, for example, would be so captured by neoliberal thinking of the, of the as they, they would put it, over the past few decades about the role of markets, that they would resist a, a radical Labour agenda if Labour got into power. I think that's unfair. 
on officials who have accommodated over the decades, you know, the big change of, of Thatcherism, the Iraq war, uh, the subtler changes of, of Blairism, now Brexit. They are an independent civil service. And I think it's um, cynical in a way to think that they're not and wouldn't support uh, whatever a new government was proposing. I think one thing we can probably be confident about is that no one's going to take the Brexit deal off Theresa May's desk and hope that she doesn't notice. Next week we'll be back in Cambridge, not in Kitchener's dressing room. I listen, I've no evidence at all. It's just there's a blue plaque on the outside and this is <laughs> roughly, roughly up. We, so. we are in the part of London where the blue plaques are, I think, the most impressive I've ever seen. The Ghoul's plaque is just over the road. We're going to come back and talk about American politics and we are going to do a live special the morning after the midterm results with Gary Gerstle, our resident expert on the history and the present of American politics. If you'd like to ask us a question, record it, have us hear it and have us try and answer it, go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com and under contact you can see how to do that. It's really easy and we'd love to hear from you. Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. In a way, I guess what I'm getting at is just a question about where resistance to growing executive power should come from as the siren goes past. The police. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.